12 years ago this summer, I got to preach through the book of Ecclesiastes. 12 years ago. It was the second book that I ever got to preach. And then about seven years later, I got to start this book again at Christian Covenant Fellowship. And I made it about halfway through before we had to finish up there. And so I am really excited to be able to jump into this wisdom literature and preach the book of Ecclesiastes from start to finish. We'll have a few people in between that are preaching some of these sermons, but I think we are on a wild ride that we're going to learn from God in a lot of unique ways uh, from this book. And so there are Old Testament categories that we, we really need to know that are helpful for us as we introduce this book. And so the Old Testament is categorized, the, the, the Jewish people had a way of categorizing it in three separate categories. So the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. We have the exact same books of the Jewish Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, but we categorize them in five ways. And so we have the Torah, or the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and then we have the history books of the people of God, so the history of God's dealings with Israel. And then we have what came out of the people of God, we have the wisdom literature, okay? So that would be Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And then after the wisdom literature, we have the major prophets, so Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And then after that, we have the minor prophets. So these five categories comprise the books of the Old Testament. And Ecclesiastes is in the wisdom literature. And these books are very unique and they have a very specific purpose. These books teach us how life works. How do we live the life that we live? The life that God has given us, the breath that he has filled our lungs with, how is it to be expressed, lived out, and walked in the everyday life? How then shall we live? And these books have tremendous lessons about pain, tragedy, suffering, wealth, sex, poverty, work. And these categories help us know how to live our lives Monday to Saturday and even on Sundays. Every day of the week, these books teach us and give us wisdom. How does life work? And, and these books do a really good job of showing us the pitfalls that we need to watch out for. And it's like that somebody's lived before us and made a bunch of mistakes, and it's like we, we get in the wisdom literature letters from wise old men saying, hey, if you will not repeat these mistakes, life will go better for you. I made these for you, and the Holy Spirit inspired me to write these down, so you don't have to make these same mistakes. But just like those prophets DC Talks say, some people have to learn the hard way. Guess I'm the kind of guy that's got to find out for myself. Toby Mac fans, right? Toby Mac, right? And so there, there, there are some people who, who hear wisdom, they hear Lady Wisdom, and they say, yeah, that's nice, that may have worked for you, and that may be a pitfall for you, but I'm going to be the one that doesn't fall into the pit. And then years later, when, the bottom, when they're in the bottom of the pit, they have to cry out for mercy. And so here, we have in this wisdom literature how life works and how life doesn't work. Lady Wisdom would have us learn from those who have walked the ancient path. Lady Wisdom would have us to pull up a chair, get a glass of tea, and just listen as wise old men speak to us about how life works and how life doesn't work. So we take up Ecclesiastes and we're going to learn what to look out for in life. We see this case study, this project that the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes goes on. And he has all resources imaginable and he goes out to, to do what others have tried to do. And that is find life in this material universe. Find life apart from God. We'll get to more of that 
in a little bit. But along the way, the writer is going to address all of us, every single one of us. Children in the room, you're going to be addressed. Older people in the room, you're going to be addressed. In fact, the writer addresses the young, the old, the rich, the poor, the smart, the funny, the workaholic, the power-hungry, the religious, and the irreligious. We're going to be asking big questions, not just questions of the intellect. We're going to be asking questions of the heart. What do we love? What do we love? What do we pursue? What do we look to to satisfy the longings of our soul? What do we do with that heart ache that even believers deal with? And then along the way, we're going to have some key phrases that come up. They just kind of bubble up to the surface over and over again. To We'll get real familiar with them. One of the phrases is vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. What does that mean? We'll discover that. But also another one is under the sun. We're going to get these words under the sun that are just repetitive. We hear about under the sun life. And when the preacher, Solomon, we find out of Solomon, says under the sun, what he's referring to, what he's meaning is everything in the created world. So God is over the sun. The sun's here. If we're just kind of like talking about height and depth here, God's over the sun. And then everything under the sun is the created material world world. Everything else is under the sun. God is above the sun. And in large part, this book is about the madness, the folly, the ridiculousness of atheism and the utter folly of the secular view of life. The utter folly. So look at verse 1 with me, the preacher, the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. The words of the preacher, the son of David, King in Jerusalem, the preacher. In the words of the preacher, in those first five words, we have so much. And this sets the stage for where we're going with this book. This book was not written in an arbitrary manner. It was not intended to communicate nihilism, which is the idea that everything is meaningless. When we hear vanity, vanity, is he telling us that everything is vain? Or is there a purpose in the phrases Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And in fact, we find in these first five words that there is a purpose to this book. Because he describes himself as the preacher. And what do preachers do? Preachers preach. Preachers teach. Preachers speak the words of God. Not their own words, the words that are inspired by God, the words that are God's word. And this book is written by a preacher, and it's written in, in, with the intent of teaching the audience the lessons he is wanting to teach the audience. The author puts pen to paper to teach. And so all of us, each week, for the next 15 or 16 or 18 weeks, it's like we're going to get that camp chair, and we're going to pull up around the fire together, and we're going to sit that chair out. Some people, you know, the, the Perrys have those really nice big chairs, those camp chairs, the plaid ones. I love those chairs. Those are really great. You pull out your camp chair, you get your tea, and you just sit there, you cross your legs a little bit, and you listen to the wisdom that's coming from the other side of the fire. And it's like Solomon's sitting there, and he's talking to us, and he's just telling, listen, here's the mistakes that I made. The wisest man who ever lived, apart from Jesus Christ, the wisest man, this, this man Solomon, who knew the right thing to do, but we see clearly Clearly, and this is something that Brian Sauvey, when he was here preaching in, at the, the family conference that we did, what we saw so clearly is this wisest man who ever lived 
didn't actually live wisely. He sinned, and he needed a redeemer. And so wisdom alone will not get us to Jesus. We need the sun to come from above the sun. And so if all we get from the book of Ecclesiastes is just make wise choices and live wisely, we're going to miss the one who made the right choices and did live wisely and came to rescue and redeem those who don't. But then when we know Jesus, when we know him, there's a way that life works. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we begin to walk this stuff out. So the preacher is pulling up a chair and inviting us in to say, here, let me just tell you a few things that I've learned along the way. Who is the preacher? He identifies himself as the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. You know, there's hot debate about who the actual author is, and really, there's just not much evidence to the contrary. We can just say with, with great confidence that the preacher is self-authenticating the letter here and saying that it's me, it's Solomon. In the same way that Solomon wrote songs, and Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon, and Solomon put pen to paper to write poetry. This is the Song of Solomon, or this is the, the same author, the son of David, writing this book. And I think, based on verse 1, and the whole aim of the book, and the last two verses of the book, and the last two verses of the book are fear God and keep the commandments, the, the whole duty, the whole, that, that is the whole duty of man, the whole matter has been heard, I think the main point of this book and I think that this tells us that this is, I think, I think this is Solomon's repentance letter. I think this is, I think that this is Solomon writing after making the errors of his old age, after making the errors of his ways throughout his life, I think this is Solomon writing to say, hey, listen, don't make the mistakes that I made. I said, watch out for the Jezebel, and then I went and slept with her. I said, watch out for all these different pitfalls. And then I went and marched with my eyes wide open right into them. And I don't want you to go and do the same. And so we're going to see that Solomon is a curator. It's like an art curator who comes and curates a, an, an artist's work and comes in and puts the nice mat on it and, and puts it on the wall and then puts the next piece up. And maybe in chronological order, the art curator comes and does the work and puts it all together so the artist work can be seen as what it is, beautiful. And Solomon is this curator of all things worldly, and it's like he's teaching us about the vanity of life in an atheistic view of life. He's going to live like God does not exist, and then he's going to teach us through teaching us and showing us the folly of those ways. You see, Solomon in this, Solomon, the wise old man, the, the one who's wanting to preach to us, he tried finding his purpose through wisdom, he tried finding his purpose and joy through slapstick, stupidity, and humor. He tried finding purpose and fulfillment in this life through self-indulgence and acts like sex, drugs, and whatever else. He tried more noble pursuits, more noble pursuits like hard work. And after he grew up a little bit and stopped doing all the things that teenagers do, he tried to work hard. He tried the philosophical life. He tried the religious pursuits. He tried power and wealth and honor and family and love. And he had those unlimited resources of the king, the wealthiest king, and he put them to the test, all of these things to the test. And what did he find out? He tells us right out of the gate what he found out. Look at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
You see, this king who had people bringing gold into him daily, this king who had everything before him, this king who was granted wisdom from on high, this king took a period of his life, a case study of his life, and, and he just said, I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to try this. And he walked off the narrow path, and he went into the way that's broad, and he tried everything under the sun as if there was nothing above the sun. And he tried it to a degree that nobody else could try it. None, none of the people in this room have unlimited resources. He did. And so everything he did, he did to the max. He didn't dabble in any of these things. He went all in. He was like a man who finds a new hobby. He gets on Amazon, buys all the gear, and then sells it in a yard sale eight years later. I must be the only one. I don't get on Amazon. I get on Facebook Marketplace and I trade. I've been loving Facebook Marketplace. You can put anything on Facebook Marketplace. You can put like old dirty diapers on there and people would message you immediately in like three minutes. Can you please deliver these to Cape Girardeau? Like, sorry, I can't deliver them. The writer, the preacher says it's all vanity. Now this is a massive statement. This phrase is going to come up in 29 verses throughout this book. So we're going to come back to this word vanity. It means meaningless, purposeless. It's all vain. There's nothing to it. The substance itself carries no value. It appears to be. It's, it's, it's shiny. It's, it's pretty. It, it comes with promises. But after you've tried it, you see that those promises were actually false. They were actually lies. You've tried it to the max, and you've realized, this is vain. This doesn't do what it promises to do for me. And this example can be seen in all of our lives. You get the new trinket. Today's technology is tomorrow's nostalgia. You try it. Enjoy it for a minute, and then it's gone. The atheistic worldview, it leads to sheer vanity. It leads there. That's the logical end in a world without God, is that none of this matters. It's not going to be remembered. It doesn't matter what I do. There's no such thing as ethics. There's no such thing as good and bad. If God doesn't exist, I can do whatever I want, and nobody can tell me otherwise. There's no standard of right and wrong. In the end, it is all vanity. Life doesn't matter if God doesn't exist. And so what Solomon's going to do for us is he's going to roll out for us some examples of vanity. And we get these three views of life. Number one, the brevity of life. Number two, the monotony of life. And number three, the exhaustion of life. The brevity of life, the monotony of life, and the exhaustion of life. We're going to see examples of vanity. Look at verse three. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. A generation comes, and a generation goes. The earth remains forever. We, we see in this passage, in these two verses, a brevity of life. If we stay under the sun, why does this matter? Again, if we stay in this material universe as if God doesn't exist, why does it matter? It doesn't. What comes from our work? We work hard. We have calloused hands. We save a little bit of money. And then, just like everybody else, we die, and the next generation takes our place. Time keeps rolling on. Our death date is a day sooner today than it was yesterday. 
What is the point? Toil, work is meaningless if God doesn't exist. It goes so quick. Have you met anybody in their life that says, the older I get, the time just begins to slow down and down and down. It just feels like I'm living in slow motion. The exact opposite. The exact, especially when you have kids and your kids begin to grow. I mean, I'm, I'm 36 and a half at this point. Mom, does it seem like yesterday that I was just, I mean, not this big, but I mean, like this big? Because time, it flies. You've heard that, right? Time flies, especially when you're having fun. Time keeps on moving on. And so Solomon is saying, under the sun, if God doesn't exist, if I'm pursuing my pursuits in this world, then there's no point in my toil. I'm working for nothing. Toil's meaningless if God does not exist. Now, look at the monotony of life. Look at verse 7. Or five, excuse me. The sun rises, and then the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north. Around, around it goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. The sun, it rises every day. And you know what? The sun, it sets every day. Every day. It rises and it falls. It's like Groundhog Day every single day. You know, in that movie, Bill Murray, it's a great movie, Groundhog Day. It's funny. And it's probably inappropriate. I don't know. I haven't seen it in so many years. You remember, you, you remember when you're younger, you watch a movie and you're like, oh, that's like a very clean movie. And then like 10 years later, you watch it and you're like, your kids are in the room and you're, oh my God goodness, we got to turn this thing off. This is awful. So Groundhog Day is it's like this really good metaphor, a really good illustration of what Solomon's talking about. Because in Groundhog Day, it's like you have all the advantages in front of you. The first few days when you're waking up, he's like, oh, I'm going to rob the bank. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something. I'm going to have fun. And you see that it starts off with promises. Like, this is great. Are you kidding me? I get to live this day every day like this? And then there's a corner. He turns the corner and things begin to be depressing for him. And he's finding new ways to end that day. And it becomes very nihilistic or purposeless. You see the vanity of life in the repetition of life or the monotony of life in that movie. You see the wind, it blows, but it never ends. It doesn't stop. There's more of it tomorrow. The water well, the streams run into the sea, but it's interesting because the sea never fills up and the streams don't run dry. It's this endless cycle. And in a godless world, routine, again, Solomon's preaching here. He's wanting us to connect the dots here with what he's talking about. Uh, this monotony, it keeps going, and nothing ever happens. It just The sea doesn't ever get full, and the rivers never drain. It's just this cycle that keeps going. And he wants us to think through the monotony of this. The wind doesn't go away. The wind blows, and the next day, the wind comes and blows again. Where did it come from, and where did it go? What powers it? Well, you can say the jet streams come, and we know more about this. And still, that, there's so much mystery to weather in our universe. Ask somebody, is the world getting hotter or colder? And see what response you get. And then you look down through history, and you see these with, with weather, ups and downs. And friends, even the smartest minds in the world can't agree about weather systems. 
And here Solomon's saying, hey, just think about it. These weather systems, they keep going, and they, it's, this is a, a well-crafted machine, and it just keeps going, but nothing ever fills up, and nothing ever stops. That wind is just going to keep on coming. And he's wanting us to think. In a godless world, in a secular view of life or a secular worldview, routine has no meaning. That's why Bill Murray gets so depressed, because he can't find joy in the monotony. Repetition is vanity on top of vanities. Now, because the preacher is preaching, we need to be thinking through this. When we know Christ, the routine of life is seen for what it is. Beautiful. We see, as Wendell Berry, the author, sees beauty in the monotony. We see beauty in the monotony, but we're getting there a little bit later. Verse 8, the exhaustion of life. So the brevity of life, the monotony of life. And then look at the exhaustion of life in verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what's been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Exhaustion, tiredness, uh, Satisfaction. We get this word satisfaction. Satisfaction. Are you a satisfied person? What is this satisfaction we're talking about? You know, you two, you, you two had this song I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And it's so, it's such a good song that communicates the internal ache, the, the longings of the heart that, that go unfulfilled in this life. And I want you to say this, even as a believer, even as a believer, we have higher levels of satisfaction because we know that the sun has come from above the sun. The S-O-N has come from above the S-U-N to rescue, redeem sinners like you and I and make us sons and daughters of God. So we have ultimate satisfaction in that. But until Christ fully saves and redeems us, until we have our glorified bodies, until we're with him forever, we're still going to have some heart aches. Our, our heart is going to see the news. We're going to see um, what happened with George Floyd. And when we see that, does it not, when we see that, we think, that's a bad guy, and Jesus, would you please bring justice? Please come fix this place. Then we see riots, we see viruses, we see all of this, and we have this internal ache knowing this is not how things should be. I know the one who can fix this, and I know the one who is going to fix this. He's not sitting idly by. He will fix this. It is sure and certain. We know the one who will. But we, even as believers, have these heart aches. But what Solomon is describing is this lack of satisfaction in life in an atheistic worldview. And friends, Solomon does not want us to live as if we are secularists. He does not want us to experience life in the same way the atheists experience life. In this life, Solomon says, there is exhaustion. All things are full of weariness. And we've all been through seasons, especially when your kids are young or when you got grandkids over. You, you know what exhaustion is. You know when you can't sleep. For some reason you go through periods of time where you can't sleep and you just you feel like a zombie when you wake up and a zombie when you go to work and a zombie when you come home. We've all experienced things that just exasperate us and they're just they're exhausting. It just feels like a season where you're just you you just can't get enough rest. And in this world as we know it, the logical end of atheism is exhaustion and blandness. And it's different from the kind of tiredness that a Christian feels. 
The logical end of all atheism or secularism, views of this world that do not have room in it for God, the logical end is exhaustion and blandness. Exhaustion is the fruit of a godless worldview. And you may say, well, I know a lot of atheists, or there's probably some out there. I know some that kind of would meet the criteria of being an atheist, but they don't feel like that way. They're not always exhausted. They've got a lot of energy. Just talk to Lance Armstrong, even drugs excluded. He was a guy of high energy who was also an atheist, is, at least he used to be. So I, I know a lot of atheists that don't feel that way, Solomon. We could kind of call him to the carpet. Here's the deal. For those atheists or agnostics who haven't come to the conclusion that this is all meaningless, it's all vanity, that is God's common grace to them to not let them take that worldview till its logical end. God is so kind that he even lets atheists and agnostics receive some measure of joy in this life. Those who will never acknowledge him, those who will never know him, he still, in his common grace, is so kind to them that he lets them enjoy the smiles of a child. He lets them enjoy the taste of a cookie. Thank you, Deanna and Lito, for that cookie. I didn't know today. Today's apparently pastor day, and they came in and gave me a... You guys must have not got the memo. Only the Tecadarises did. They gave me cookies, but it's okay. Next week, next week you can make up for that. Yeah, with interest, yes. Thank you, Dennis. Um, it's God's common grace to them. People who blatantly and boldly speak against God, God doesn't immediately smite them in his wrath because he's kind and he's gracious and he delays his wrath. But Solomon wants to jolt the reader, grab us by the shoulders and jolt us out of that mindset. Hear me. He wants to jolt us out of that mindset. The Christian life is not meant to be experienced in the same way as the world experiences life. And so if you find yourself in agreement with all the secularist way of life here, and say, yes, everything I do is exhaustion. Everything I do is vanity. It all feels purposeless. Solomon's wanting to say, if you know God, it shouldn't be that way. There's a different way to live. And there's no excuse for the Christian to live like the atheist or agnostic or those who deny God's existence. There's a different way to do this thing called life. And he wants us to understand, he wants us to listen, he wants to preach to us that we would avoid living a life under the banner of Christ as if we're living like an atheist. So come on out of that. There's a better way. You don't have to live this way. But the vanity continues. Look at verse 9 through 11. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing of which it can be said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Everything comes and everything goes. An illustration I used years ago when I preached this, I think it was, it was Christian Covenant because iPads weren't out yet. Somebody could say to Solomon, you know, well, hey, see, this is new, an iPad or some modern technology. But here's the thing. What isn't new is technology. It's always been around. And what isn't new is innovators and inventors and thinkers who are thinking about better ways to do something, more efficient ways to get work done. 
You may say, well, that's a new product, but there's nothing new under the sun. That's a new product that's just going to be an old product next year. In fact, iPad 2s now, you can't even update because they just want you to buy a new product. It may still work, but they don't let you use it because they want more money. Give me more money. Give me more money. There have always been inventors. Innovations of today, I said this earlier, I just like this line. So I, innovations of today are nostalgia of tomorrow. So it is. Remember the iPad? I mean, not, remember the uh, iPhone? I mean, not iPhone, the, the uh, iPod. Remember the iPod? See, I, I, there's no remembrance of former things. <laughs> remember the iPod? Now, apparently, there are people that really want to get old iPods that are not iPhones because it's a more pure listening experience. Generally, the person who wants something like that is about 33 to 35, wearing skinny jeans and a tattered shirt, looking like Kurt Cobain, and wants to be, just another word for that is hipster. A more pure listening experience. Then you don't have all the distractions of phone calls and text messages and all that kind of stuff. But we think about that and we remember those things and those are things of yesterday. And just think how fast everything progresses and everything moves and everything moves forward. And there was a day that the wheel was a pretty incredible technology. Where they were talking about, hey, listen, I've heard this thing that can make that plank of wood move over there and it only takes three minutes. It's a thing called a wheel. And you put these things, it's called an axle. You put these two wheels on the sides. There's this guy that's figured out how to bend wood. You actually bend wood and then you put these state or these uh, like, like things called spokes in here. And you can, do, you can move a tremendous amount of weight. And before that, there was somebody who had this big rock right here and realized with this big tree branch, I can move that rock. If I place a rock right here and then put the tree here, it's called a lever. And I can move that rock because they're using technology. They're thinking through and using their mind to solve problems. And friends, that's always been around. There is no remembrance of former things. It's just things just go, and that's why nobody remembers their Christmas gifts from last year. Nobody remembers their Christmas gifts a week and a half later when you're just asked, hey, make a list of everything you got for Christmas. You can remember like two of them. And that's it. There's nothing new under the sun. People are forgetful. Possessions do not have staying power. And I, you know, this is the great thing about Ecclesiastes because it's, it's like a refresher for us. So if you've heard this book preached before or studied it before, you get this, that new things like trinkets and possessions, they don't have staying power in your life. You enjoy them for a while and then it gets old. You know what I mean? Like whatever it is, even you get, you get a new car and that new car smell goes away and you still enjoy your car, but then the next year's model comes out and they change the design and you're thinking, boy, if I would have just waited one more year, I would have got that new model I should have known they had the same model for three years. I should have known that next year was the, the, the year. If I just would have got that Consumer Reports magazine, I would have known they were changing the body style. I love that body style so much more, but I guess I need to learn to be content with this. It's because we always want the next, the most shiny. Not just the shiny, we want the most shiny. And kids, this way, it, it works like this in school, and if you can get the lessons of this book, friends, there, people in school, want the newest, they want the best, they want to be it, and there is nothing that you can get, no piece of technology, no even experience that people promise to be the experience that will satisfy you. There is nothing that can satisfy you in this world the way Jesus can. Amen. Nothing. Amen. Even fishing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, even, <laughs> yeah, thank you. 
Ryan's like, wait a minute, let's not start talking about fishing here. <sighs> everything comes and everything goes. Life is utter vanity if God doesn't exist. And those who think otherwise just haven't thought long enough. And it's God's grace that they've not worked out all those details in their mind. It's just God's grace to them. that He's just allowing them to experience a measure of purpose in this life without understanding the futility, the futility of their worldview. And so we need to think about a few things. When we think about this chapter and all that Solomon is doing, and then think about the Bible as a whole, we need to remember a few things. Number one, we need to remember that, that Solomon is preaching. He's teaching to us. He has a point that we need to learn. He's taking us somewhere. We're walking this morning. When, when you saw the Instagram image or the Facebook image, if you saw it, there was a path. And it said, we're coming on Sunday morning. Uh, uh, let's hear from God together or something. I don't know. But I, I picked that image because there was a path there. And there's a path that Solomon's inviting us to walk on here. There's a way of life that Solomon's inviting us into that's a different way of life than the world. It's going to look different if you live this way. And this is what Christians, this is the path, the ancient path that Christians and the people of God have been walking for a very long time. Now, we've been stumbling, we've been going from this side to this side, but this is that narrow way. This is the path that we're invited into of different existence. Chapter 12, verse 13 and 14 says this. Solomon brings us to the end of the matter. He says, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. That is the end of the matter. That's where Solomon's taking us. But here's what I want us to think through. Because Jesus tells us in, in Luke 24 and John chapter 5... Jesus is the point of the scriptures. And we, as we're studying this book, we need to be mining it through the power of the Holy Spirit to find the treasure that is Jesus. And he's there on every page. And as we mine, as we dig, as we see what's in plain sight, what always comes to the surface, and page after page, you remember going through uh, Genesis, I hope, where we see these redemptive themes over and over again. And it's like Jesus just kept popping up out of the page and saying, here I am, I'm right here. If you see me, I'm here, right here. This is, I'm right here. And he's all over the place in Ecclesiastes. Because chapter 12, verse 13 and 14 brings us to fear God and keep his commandments. It brings us to the law of God. But that provides us with a question. How can Solomon say this, that this is the end of the matter? It's the question that the law of God always brings up. If this is true, if the whole matter has been heard, and all we've got to do is fear God and keep his commandments, this is the whole duty of man, then Solomon himself is doomed by the end of the matter. Because he did not fear God and he did not keep his commandments, even though he had access and a mind full of all the wisdom that any man could ever have apart from Christ. He didn't walk it out. He didn't live what he knew to be true. He fell into the warnings that he warned other people about. And so fear God and keep his commandments is an invitation to think through the Bible as a whole, the story of God as a whole. How then can I be saved? How then can I be satisfied? And the questions that come to us throughout this book, page after page, about satisfaction and purpose and getting above the sun, the question is not how can we crawl and climb and clench our fist and with bloody hands and sweat on our brow, how can we finally make it up there? That's not the point. 
we see the message of Christmas in Ecclesiastes. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The S-O-N came beneath the S-U-N. The sun came from above the sun to below the sun. He descended from above. The sun came down and he provides the clarity that we need. He is the key to this book to unlock and to see its beauty, to step into Narnia and stand in awe. He is the answer. He provides us direction. He is the key. Jesus is the answer. John 6, 32 through 35 says this. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you, who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives the bread and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus comes from above the sun, the very bread of life. What does bread do for the hungry, hungry belly? Starts with S and ends with satisfies. Satisfies a hungry belly. A satisfaction. Jesus is the answer. We can't get above the sun. But God in his kindness descends. He brings revelation. He speaks. He sends his word and breaks forth into this created universe. And he tells us how things work. He tells us truth from error. He shows us the way and he shows us the only way. Not just to live, but shows us the way in all capital letters, Jesus Christ. Jesus came from the bu- above the sun. Jesus satisfies hungry souls. In the same way that bread satisfies hungry bellies, Jesus satisfies hungry souls. He is our sustenance in this world. In him we have life and meaning and purpose, all of the pursuits of Solomon through the book of Ecclesiastes. In him, we have life and meaning and purpose. In him, we see the beauty, not the vanity, of life under the sun. In him, when we know the God of the universe, in him, we see the beauty, not the vanity, of life under the sun. When we see the God, when we see God and we know him, We see the God of the sun. We see the God of the wind. We see the God of the water. We find joy in the mundane and in the routines of life. We may be tired, but we find joy in the toil and know that the work of our hands is not purposeless. Fruit comes. Pursue. Keep going. Fight. And see God work. This is where we're going. Solomon, you see, he looked forward in faith. He looked forward in faith. To what God will do. The Christian looks back and sees what God did. The Christian looks back in faith and sees Christ and knows that Christ is the ultimate, ultimate one who came to fear God and keep his commandments. And all of his works were judged before the God of the universe and they were judged faithful and true. He came and feared his heavenly father perfectly. For all those who would not fear the heavenly father, but who would mock the heavenly father. He came to keep the commandments for those who are commandment breakers day in and day out. This is the king that we serve, and this is the one who came from above the sun. The Christian can say, in Christ, now that we know what Christ has done for us, the Christian can say with different lenses, fear God and keep his commandments. 
And here's what we're going to see, the irony of all this, is that when we know Christ, when we, all these things begin to make sense to us, and they start to come together for us, and the atheist says, this is vanity. The Christian who knows what Christ has done for them, the Christian is able to see beauty in what the atheist says is vain. What the secularist says, there's no point. What's it matter? The Christian says, it matters because I'm created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's created me to, from beforehand to walk in. It matters because God says, whatever I eat, drink, or do, I'm to do all for the glory of God. My breakfast this morning matters because I'm eating to the glory of God. The breath I take, it matters because I'm breathing to the glory of God. The work I do today, it feels like the work I do every day, it matters because I'm doing it for the glory of God. The Christian doesn't have to look at exhaustion the same way the, the atheist looks at exhaustion. Hear me, hear me, specifically even as we think about motherhood and the, the tiredness that comes when you have kids around, the exhaustion that comes when you have to work the 70-hour week. Let me, ask, let me just tell you, there is a way to approach work that's different than the atheist. And the atheist sees the exhaustion of it and says there's no point the Christian comes and says, God, take the fruit of my labor and make something beautiful out of it. I can't see it right now, but I'm going to work to your glory and honor. And I feel tired, but I know that this is not pointless. And I take joy in the fact that there is going to be fruit from this labor. This is what you made me for. It's not purpose. We don't work like the secularist. We don't work like the atheist. We work like children of God. Final answer. Full satisfaction. We go through this book and we're going to talk about satisfaction a lot. The Christian is going to be satisfied with the biggest questions of life. What's my purpose? What's my meaning? Can I have my answers to the guilt? And we realize, yes, we have answers to that guilt. Jesus is our answer to that. We have forgiveness of sins. We have no condemnation. These are the big, gnawing questions that people deal with in a world out there. We have answers to that. So we have satisfaction. But here's the deal. On this road called life, on this path, we are learning and becoming what's already true about us. And so we're going to experience measures, even as a Christian, we're going to experience the rest of our life measures of unsatisfaction. And we're going to have to be reminded, come back to Jesus. Because in Him are rivers of living water that do not run dry. You come and come and drink your fill. You feel parched, you feel tired, come back to Jesus again. Be reminded, you are not a particle floating in a purposeless universe of matter. You are God's son because of what Jesus did for you. Come back to Jesus, he is the river of life. And as we go through this book, we're going to be challenged over and over again. Don't chase vain idols the world chases. Come back to Jesus. He can satisfy. And as we live our life, here's my hope. The longer we go, we become more and more joy-filled people, more and more satisfied people. We have more and more of answers to the heartache because we know Jesus more and more. Friends, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to life. This is what the wisdom literature offers us. This is the life that we're invited into. We get to taste satisfaction now. We get invited into more satisfaction in our life, the rest of our life. And we get promises of full satisfaction one day. Friends, it's going to be a wonderful road. I invite you into it with me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the, the person and work of Jesus. We thank you that he came to live the life that Solomon failed to live. He could tell us what to do. He could tell us to... Watch out for this and that, but he did not do what he told others to do. But Jesus, you did. 
And so we find life there. We find joy there in his work. And if there's anybody here this morning that's been chasing after other things and it hasn't been satisfied, has been rebelling against God, I pray that you would grant them life, that they would trust in you right now, Jesus, that they would turn from their sin and say, I've been living life my own way. I think that I'm doing pretty good at this thing called life. They would turn from that and say, Jesus, I'm going to do things your way. What you say goes. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. I can't make you the King of kings and Lord of lords, but I'm going to submit to you as my king because you're the king. And I'm going to follow you. Holy Spirit, come into my life and help me to follow Jesus. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Thank you. God, help people to, to, to open up to that today. I pray that people would, through your grace, repent and trust in you. For all the believers in here, God, I pray for great joy thinking about the journey we're about to go on. This book is a wonderful invitation, and I pray that you would help us to walk that narrow way. Experientially, not just theologically, but experientially, help us walk that narrow road of being satisfied in Christ and growing to be more and more satisfied in Christ as we walk that way. Help us. Help us to listen to wise old Solomon. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you don't know Jesus this morning, you want to pray with somebody, you can pray with your, your parents, you can pray with somebody who, who brought you a friend, you can come and pray with me if you don't have anybody. And the invitation this morning is to trust in Christ, and for the Christians in the room, just follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. You know if there are things to pray for, because the Holy Spirit's making that aware to you. Other than that, let's just sing and enjoy the presence of the Lord and see where He leads. Let's worship. <laughs>